Well, friends, as we enter into the summer months, Charter Oak Church, we are going to be doing something all summer long, something that's a little bit different than what we've done in the past. What we are going to be doing is we're going to be reading a book together. But the book we're going to be reading, as you can probably guess, is a book from the Bible. And it's the, specifically, it is the book of First John. Now, you might find yourself, those of you who perhaps are familiar with the Bible, you might say to yourself, well, hold on, isn't that a really, really short book? And you would be right. It might take up two or three pages at most in many of your Bibles. Well, that's not going to take us all summer long. Well, it does when you choose to read intentionally and slowly and really allow this word to absorb into our hearts and our lives. And so that's what we're going to be doing. All summer long, we're going to be reading this book together of 1 John. And I want to challenge you all to be doing something. Uh, Maybe you did this this Sunday, maybe not. But if you have not made a habit of bringing a Bible to church, I want to challenge you to do so. And so, and here's why. You're going to see as we kind of get more involved in this message that throughout the summer, there's going to be times where we talk a little bit about how to, to actually just open that Bible right in front of you, grab a pen or a pencil, and just start note, note, making notes and underlining things and really understanding what it is that this word is saying. And so if you haven't yet, I want you to, to decide today that next Sunday you're going to bring a Bible to church. Now, if you don't have a Bible or you don't have a Bible that you um, are, you know, maybe you have a good old family Bible, but you can't bring that, lug that thing to church. There's little Bibles in your pews, right? In the pew holders. If you need that, you take that, take it home with you. Grab it. If you need a pen, I mean, grab that blue pen, take it with you. But whatever you do, I want you to challenge you as we enter into the summer to make sure that you are getting yourself into the Bible as we learn a little bit more about what God is doing and saying through this, through this book. Now, speaking of this book, I'm, I'm, what I'm holding here, this was the first Bible that I ever took seriously, when I started to read it. I started to read it when I was a teenager. You can probably tell that I had some duct tape that I had to do to keep it together. I knew that I needed to get a new Bible when the entire book of Genesis fell out. Um, and I don't, maybe, I don't know if that's a message or not, but I, I realized that I had been reading this thing so intently and so passionately that it needed a little bit of you know, tender love and care. And when I remember first reading the Gospel of Matthew for the very first first time. That was the first thing I read as, as, as a teenager. And then I, from there, I, I moved on to 1 Corinthians, and I just started reading it. And I had no agenda. I was just trying to learn. I was just trying to explore. What the heck is this book that everyone seems to, n- to know, talk about or know about? And the more I read, the more questions I had. And so that's partly why we're going to be doing this this summer, so that we can experience what it means to read the Bible. You know, think about it. When you are trying to learn something, you actually have to experience it. You can't just think or talk about it, right? I mean, if you, if you were wanting to learn how to swing a hammer to hit a nail, the way to do that is not to sign up for a, a, a weekly hammer convention and listen to a, a hammer expert explain how to hit a nail. No, that's not how you learn how to swing a hammer, is it? How do you learn how to swing a hammer? You pick one up and you find a nail to hit, hit to hit, right? So if you want to learn more about the Bible, guess the way, guess how to do it. You got to get one and open it up and just start reading. And you're going to say, but I don't understand what it means. Great, because that's an opportunity to ask a question and a chance to learn a little bit more about what God is trying to do. And so you might be confused at first. You might have lots of questions about what's going on. You might, you might read the words and have no, no, have no idea how they go together. That's okay. Because every journey begins with a first step. So this summer, we're going to dive deep into what it means to study and read the Bible together. So are you ready? 
Let's dive in. We're going to be, as I said, in the book of 1 John. And if you are looking at your pew Bibles, the little blue ones, it's on page 855. 855 is where it starts if you'd like to find it in that pew Bible. Or if you have a Bible on your phone or another type of an app or device, feel free to pull it up. We are looking at the book of 1 John. Now, beware. If you are unfamiliar with the Bible, beware because there are multiple books in the Bible that have the name John in it. There is a long book called the Gospel of John. There's, a, there's the one called 1 John that we're going to read. There's another one called 2 John. There's another one called 3 John. There are a lot of books that have John in the title. We are going to be in 1 John. Now, you might be wondering, I'm going to give you guys a quick quiz. Who do you think wrote this letter? John! That's correct! You never know. Maybe someday you'll write a letter and somebody will name it after you. You don't know, right? But in this case, the disciple John wrote a letter to a group of early Christians. And many people actually think that this may, not, this may originally have been a sermon before it was a letter, that he had preached something and then it was put into writing before it was then circulated and given to some of the earliest Christians at the very beginning of uh, you know, the very first century AD. Now, how do we know that it's John? Because for those of you that are looking at, looking at the very beginning, and we're going to read this in a second, but you'll see he doesn't say, hey, it's me, John, writing. <laughs> Many parts of the Bible do identify who the writer is, but John never does. He doesn't actually acknowledge that it's him writing. So how in the world do we know that it's John? Well, for those of you that like this stuff, I'll, I'll explain it. So first of all, the writer of this letter claims to have been an eyewitness to Jesus. And we're going to take a look at that in a little bit claims to have been somebody who, had, who knew Jesus and, and was an eyewitness to what it is that Jesus did. Second, when you're taking a look at John's letter, it is almost identical in terms of writing style to what we know as the Gospel of John. So this man, John, this early disciple of Jesus, he wrote the Gospel of John, which is a huge narrative, a story, the story of who Jesus is, but then he also wrote these letters, and when you take a look at them, you know, if you were a, a, you know, a writing expert, you would be able to, you would step back and you would say, oh my goodness, this person, whoever wrote these two pieces absolutely seems to be the same person, the same style, the same syntax, the same verb use, I mean, and on and on and on and on. Well, lastly, in the Gospel of John, because that's a whole other debate, but we, we don't fully know who wrote the... The Gospel of John doesn't say who wrote it either. Instead, the author of the Gospel of John says, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, first, for, frankly, I find that a bit, it's a bit strange. I find it weird if I was to say, hi, I'm Pastor Ben, the pastor that Jesus loved, right? As opposed to all the other pastors. But John says that about himself in the Gospel. And the way that we know that it's John is because there are specific events in the Gospel of John that only three people could have, could have known about. Only three other people could have known about. Those, other, those, those three, three people would have been either Peter, James, or John. We know it's not Peter because there's an event in the Gospel of John where John says he ran faster, or this, the, the author says that he ran faster than Peter. We know it's not James because the Gospel and these letters were written well after James, was, uh, after James died. He was killed for being a Christian in the very beginnings of the church which then leaves only one person left, that it must be the Apostle John who wrote these letters. Now, putting all that aside, as we kind of enter into this letter, let's now take a look 
at the opening four verses of 1 John chapter 1. 1 John 1, 1 through 4. I encourage you to either follow along with your, in your Bibles or to listen attentively as we hear these readings. 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. This life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write these things to make our joy complete. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. So at the very beginning of this passage, what we are going to first do is we are going to connect the dots. This, these opening verses are connected to an enormous amount of other passages in the Bible. And it, many times it goes right over our heads. We don't, we don't realize that's the case. But there are an enormous amount of dots to be connected in what you, we just read together. Now, let's take a look at that very first verse that, that, that we read, Okay. That which was from the beginning, this is very, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now, if you have your Bible with you, I want you to take a pen or a pencil and I want you to circle the word beginning, okay? You see, it, you can, I don't know if you can see it on the screen well or not, but sort of like that. You know, if you find the word beginning in that, in that first verse, and if you have your Bible with you, take a pen or a pencil. If, if you have it on your phone, you can highlight it. And you want, I want you to circle that word beginning. Now, you might be thinking, why in the world does that matter? Who cares about this word beginning? Why in the world do we need to circle it? Well, if you were an ancient Jewish person living in the, in the ancient world, and you heard somebody start a letter off like this using the word beginning, you would have alarm bells going off in your head. You would know that this was a very intentional, specific decision that somebody was using this word beginning for. It would almost be like this. Imagine today somebody stood up and they started a speech or a sermon and they said the phrase, four score and seven years ago. How many of you are thinking to yourself, well, this person is quoting or talking about Abraham Lincoln, right? It just, you just know it. Or somebody else stands up and they say, Luke, I am your father. You know that that person is thinking about what? Star Wars. In a similar sense... In the ancient world, if somebody started off the very first sentence of their sermon or their letter with this idea of that which was from the beginning, they are actually trying to quote a particular passage of scripture and trigger that into your minds so that you know what's going on. Here, hearing that word beginning would make people think of specifically the very first verse in the Bible. If you, if you know, the very first verse in the Bible is Genesis 1-1, and it says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so right from the, from the get-go, the author of the first John, John, is wanting us to know that there is something happening that he's talking about. We are to be taken back to the very beginning of the universe itself. 
creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that's not the only time that John actually does this with this word beginning. Remember I said he wrote a gospel? Well, check out what he writes as the very opening pages of his gospel. This is just on your screen. John 1, 1 through 3, he says this. In the beginning, and some of you know this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So if that's something that you don't want to forget, the way that you do that is you take your pen or your pencil, you write that, write or circle the word beginning right there in your Bible, and then you write next to it perhaps John 1.1. Or Genesis 1-1, right? As a way to trigger to you that these things are connected. These things matter. And so if we go ahead, uh, Sean, go ahead and pull up that next slide of of circling the word beginning. You see, and you circle that word and you can kind of write a a reference to another part of the Bible where these things are connected. Now, why is John introducing this concept of the beginning? He's introducing and declaring that something existed, something has existed since the beginning. He calls it in, in, uh, in his letter, he calls it the word of life. Do you see it there at the end of verse one? He says that the thing that is, has existed since the beginning, he calls it the word of life. Now he doesn't tell us exactly what this word of life is, not yet, but all we know is that he's declaring that something was present before the creation of the world. Something that precedes the beginning, right? Many times when you, when, you start, when you try to wrap your mind around the fact that the world had a beginning at some point in time, and then you try to even go farther back and say to yourself, well, then what caused the beginning, right? We get into this place where it's hard to even comprehend. And John is declaring there's something. He calls it the word of life. Something that preceded the beginning and therefore has no end. Something that is eternal. Something that was not created by, by God. And in fact, if there is something that exists before the beginning and it was not created by God, then that thing must in fact be God because God is the only thing that can precede the beginning. There is something that, has, that is the first uncaused cause, something that is the source of everything that we know of in this world. There is something, if we could say it this way, that is the source of existence. Something from the beginning is the source of it all. And notice, John doesn't actually tell us what it is. All he says is that it is. There is something from the beginning. But then, before he even goes on to explain what, what it is, he goes on to say this, this, this verse, something that is mind-blowing. Do you see what he says happens in verse 2? He says, This thing that precedes the beginning itself and is the source of all existence, well, this thing we heard, we saw, we looked at, and our very hands touched. Now, just pause for a moment and try to realize how mind-blowing this statement is. John is saying that he himself has physically seen and heard and even tangibly touched the thing that is the source of all existence itself. He has physically come into contact with something that is eternal, something that precedes the beginning. Now, it almost sounds like a sci-fi movie if you really stop and think about what he's trying to get across, doesn't it? 
that somebody has actually touched and come into contact with the source of all existence itself, right? And so maybe if that's something you need to emphasize in your own Bible, you know, take your pen or your pencil and underline those verbs, similar to how it is on the slide, right? Like underline those and say, these are really major declarations that he's making right here. That he himself has seen, heard, and touched the source of all existence itself. Now, how in the world can that even be the case? How can that be possible? How can somebody like you or me make a claim that they have interacted with and touched the source of all existence itself? It's ludicrous, is it not? It's, it's, it's insane. It's, it's, it's scandalous. And John knows that. He knows that this claim that he is making is beyond comprehension. So how in the world can he make this claim that he himself has touched and experienced and heard and seen the source of all existence itself. Why? Because John declares that he has seen and heard and touched the person of Jesus of Nazareth. John has seen and looked and heard and interacted with and had conversations with and ate meals with a man named Jesus. And he came to discover and realize that in this man, Jesus, the fullness of God dwelled bodily. Now, that moves us to our next main point. We're going to use a big, fancy Christian theological word here called the incarnation. The incarnation is what John is getting at there in verse 2. He says, the life appeared. We've seen it. We testify to it. And we proclaim to you. You can almost hear him trying to say, look, I'm not making this up. I proclaim to you. That, the, the, that which was with the Father, which was with God himself, which was preexistent before the source of, 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 of all time, appeared to us. And that's what we Christians call the incarnation. Now, the incarnation, whether you know it or not, we celebrate that once a year. Do you know when? December 25th. The incarnation is what we celebrate on Christmas Day. That's what Christmas is all about. You thought it was just Jesus' birthday, right? But it's so much more than that. Christmas is the affirmation that there is a God, and this God chose to become a human being in the person of Jesus. Christmas is the celebration and the affirmation that there is a God, there is a God, and that very God chose to limit himself and enter and become a part of the very world that he created himself. Now, this is, so, I mean, I feel like I'm almost, you know, talking about something so deep and then I switch to this, but have any of you seen the movie Aladdin? <laughs> right? Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. Okay. There's a scene in the movie Aladdin where Princess Jasmine decides she just wants to be a normal person, Right? And so what she decides to do is instead of wearing her gown and glorious royalty robes, she dresses down like a normal person and decides she wants to go into the marketplace. And she ends up meeting a man, Aladdin, and the rest is history. Blah, blah, blah. They fall in love. Well, Aladdin, he has no idea that it's the princess, right? I mean, regardless of the fact that, well, never mind. But he doesn't know that it's Princess Jasmine. But when suddenly what happened, I'm not going to tell you how. You have to watch Aladdin. When he discovers that, oh my goodness, it's the princess, he's flabbergasted. What? He can't believe it. Princess Jasmine, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. You're supposed to be up in the palace. You're not allowed to be out here on the streets. What if something happens? This could be terrible. He's flabbergasted. Now, 
just for a moment, going back to you know, the Bible, imagine the shock and awe of the earliest disciples when they come to this realization that this man, Jesus, who has been walking the streets with them for three years, is God. Not just someone who knows a lot about God. <laughs> not, not just someone who seems to be a little holier than the rest. But is God. You're talking to the same God who filled the seas with water. He's, he's right here with us. We're, we're talking with the same man, the, the person of Jesus Christ is the same God who had conversations with Moses. The same God who, whom angels bow down to and, and, and obey. The almighty source of all existence whom we call God became a little bitty baby. That's what John is talking about when he says this word of life, right? It almost, it almost, you, you almost struggle to find words of human language to describe what's going on because it's, it's, it's beyond us. C.S. Lewis would once call this the true grand miracle. And as I said, the fancy theological word for this is the word incarnation. That word incarnation, if you're curious, it means something. The word incarnation means the act of being made flesh. The act of being made flesh. And so the incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas, is the celebration of the source of all existence, God himself becoming flesh. And so if you want, circle that word appeared in verse 2 there. Because that is John making a statement that the, the God himself appeared to us, and you can write the word incarnation in the margin if you want, right? Like that's what he's talking about. That's, that's, that's what he tried to, to, to squeeze into one little word, <laughs> that idea. In, in, in his gospel, and some of us, we, we've talked about this last summer, some of you when we were thinking and reflecting on what it means for us to go out into the city of Jeanette and to be with people and to dwell with people right where they are. John says this in his gospel. This is John 1, 14a. He says, the word became flesh and dwelled among us, made his dwelling among us. Now, why does John care about any of this, right? Why start off this letter emphasizing the incarnation? Well, remember, John is still, he's writing in the ancient world. And in the ancient world, everybody believed that there, there, was, there were gods. Remember, in the ancient world, you believed that gods existed. It wasn't a question of whether or not there was a God. In the ancient world, the question was, which one? Which one are we supposed to truly serve? Or which one are we supposed to give our allegiance? Do I give my allegiance to Zeus or to Baal or to Aphrodite or to Yahweh or to the God of Israel? Well, so people believed that, the, that in the existence of gods, they believed that God or gods could interfere with our world, but mostly they just believed that the gods, they stayed wherever the gods stayed, and that's kind of what they did. They didn't really interact or interfere too much with what was going on in our own lives. Sure, we would try really, really hard to influence them, right? And so we would, we, would, we would try to make sacrifices and make all kinds of prayers and whatnot to try to get those gods to hear us and do something. But for the most part, those gods, they stayed where they were. They didn't really do much or interfere with our day and age on what we're going on, what's going on in our own lives. But then... Christians, people like John and Peter and Paul and James and Mary, they, they, they begin to make this claim that no one had ever heard before. This claim that Israel's God didn't just come down and visit the world for a little bit, 
But, this, but that Israel's God became a part of the world. And, and then they make this claim that because Israel's God became a part of the world, the people of Israel couldn't take it. They, 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 they refused to accept that that could actually be something that took place. And so in response, they decided to kill this man who claimed to be their God. They killed their God on a cross. You know, it's funny, people in the ancient world, when they would have heard Christians making this claim that God became man and dwelt among us, that God became a, a, a human being in the person of Jesus Christ, they would have said that's completely and utterly ridiculous. Gods exist, but to hear you actually claim that God is going to enter into this world and become a person, that's nonsense. That's scandalous, you Christians. How in the world could you make these, this ridiculous claim? We all know that's not what gods do, but John and the early disciples, they are just insistent They're insistent. They're like, we agree with you that it's a ridiculous claim, is more or less what they're saying. Like, yes, we we get it. That's why it's called the scandal of the cross. We get it. This is ridiculous. This is an insane uh, uh, claim for us to make that the God will come into and be a part of our world. So why would we make this up? We agree with you that it's outrageous, but why would we make this up? Because, yes, it is insane. We were there, though, and we saw him, and we touched him, and we heard him. We, we watched it all happen. We, we met him. In fact, this claim that God became and, and dwelled bodily in the person of Jesus Christ was so shocking to people in the ancient world that over the next 300 years or so, all kinds of false teachings kept popping up all around the church, because they kept trying to soften this pronouncement. It was just, it was just too, too edgy to say that God could become a person. And so all these heresies kept popping up trying to soften this announcement. You see, think of it this way. In the ancient world, people were totally fine with, with, with the claim that Jesus was God. But they struggled to accept that Jesus could also be a person. If Jesus was a God, that's fine, but he wasn't really a human being. That's just incredibly nonsense. You can't make that claim. That's that's ludicrous. It's funny that in today's day and age, it's the exact opposite. We're totally fine with people saying that Jesus was a person, a human being, but to make the claim that he was God? No, 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 no. Don't you dare. That's ludicrous. That's insane. That's ridiculous. And it's funny, you know, it's like a pendulum that swings throughout history, that there's periods of time where, where people are more comfortable with the fact of thinking of Jesus as being a God, but not as a human being. And there's other cultures and times in history where we're comfortable with Jesus being a person, but don't, don't, you know, don't say that he's God. But you keep coming back to statements like John's at the very beginning. That the, the source of all existence we saw in the beginning of time, we've seen him, we've touched him, we've, we've witnessed him. We saw God in the person of Jesus. And so was Jesus a human being? Yes. Was he God? Yes. Oh, so he's 50% man and 50% God? No. He's 100% man and 100% God. But that doesn't make sense. Exactly. If Jesus to you is just a person, if he's only a person then what will eventually happen is you begin to see him as nothing more than a really good guy who said a lot of good things. You might even agree with those things that he said. You might even decide to organize your life around trying to follow them. But that's about it. It stops there. Jesus becomes one option among many options because there's really then no difference between following Jesus or following Plato or following Aristotle or following Oprah. But if this other claim 
that Jesus is God is also true, if Jesus is also this word made flesh, the God of the universe, then you don't just agree with his teachings and buy his book. You fall on your knees in worship. The very source of existence is seeking to come to you in a way that you can understand it. And in response, we surrender our whole allegiance to this God, no matter what the cost. And we cry out in adoration, my Lord and my God. So after all of this, John tells us why he's even talking about it. You ready for this? We move on to verse three and he says, it's all about fellowship, fellowship. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. In in verse three, he says, we proclaim to you what we've seen and what we've heard so that you may also have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So as I said, the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. And maybe you want to write that in, write in your Bible. You can circle that word fellowship and write the word koinonia if you wish. But the reason why this matters is because fellowship or koinonia is not just hanging out with people. Okay. Fellowship is, it's an experience of sharing something so significant that you have in common with other people. It's when you're in a group with others and you see eye to eye on things that that really, really matter, right? Finding true fellowship is finding a place where you really do belong. You know, we tend to think of fellowship with other people in this sense, and, and John is acknowledging that in his letter that this is something that's being offered to us, fellowship with other people. But then he makes again a ridiculously ludicrous, radical statement and says, but you can also have that very same feeling of fellowship with God, God himself. Later on in the letter, John is actually going to unpack what that consists of and how it ought to, and how it transforms your life from the inside out. Because if you're truly in fellowship with God, your whole life changes. If your life is not changing, then you're probably not in fellowship with God. When you are in fellowship with God, your whole life changes. And then he wraps up just these introductory statements by saying this. In verse 4, he says, I'm writing all of this to you guys. Everything that I'm about to say, I write this. We write this to make our joy complete. Do you see it there in verse 4? We're writing this to give you complete joy. Maybe you want to circle that word joy because that's where this whole section is going to, that there is joy. Now I've talked about this before. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Don't confuse them. They're connected. Yes. But happiness is an emotion based on your circumstances. It's when something good happens to you, it makes you feel happy. When something bad happens to you, you don't feel happy. And as a result, happiness waxes and wanes with whatever is going on in your life. But joy is not based on your circumstances. Joy is a fruit of God's spirit, and it, joy, emerges from the unchanging truths and promises of God. Promises that God makes to us, such as, I will never leave you or forsake you, or nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. Or as John is saying, you can can have fellowship with God, that you can actually experience what it means to have fellowship with the God who became man. And because joy is based on these unchanging promises of God, you can actually have joy even when you're not happy. 
You can actually have joy even if you don't have a smile on your face. And so when a Christian says that they're experiencing joy, it doesn't mean that they're putting some fake smile on, acting as if everything's okay. That's not the case. Joy is being in such utter and transformative peace and, 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 and a sense of knowing that you are a part of the, in fellowship with God himself, that even when the world is crashing down around you, you can still experience joy, even if you're not smiling. John is trying to ultimately say that everything that he's about to write in this letter, every main point and topic from the incarnation to the idea of what it means to have fellowship is all about experiencing this joy. The joy of discovering and believing that the creator of the universe did indeed become a person named Jesus. The joy of realizing that you can indeed have fellowship with God and experience a place to belong both with God's people and with God himself. And so... We're going to end right where we started. I want you to go ahead and take a look at the very beginning of 1 John, because I'm just going to read those first four verses again, and we're going to let God's word be the end of this message. And hear it this time afresh. John writes, That which was from the beginning which we heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked at and our hands have touched, this... We proclaim concerning the word of life. That life appeared. We've seen it. We testify to it. And we are proclaiming to you this eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and what we have heard so that you might have fellowship with us And our fellowship is with God the Father and his Son, Jesus the Christ. We write all of this to make our joy complete. Amen.